morning. Welcome to the Springs. Uh, fasting is incredible. It's great. Uh, but eating is better. And uh, I'm, I'm so thankful for this week of fasting. I believe that Jesus changes us when we fast, but it really does make you appreciate the gift of food, doesn't it, church? Amen. Well, today we find ourselves in week two of our new series called Amazing Grace. Uh, the goal of this series is to present a theological, biblical, and practical view of grace that results in a deeper appreciation and experience of God's amazing and life-transforming grace. Last week, Pastor Peter preached out of Romans 5 and taught on how God's amazing grace transforms our relationship with God. This week, we are coming out of Titus chapter 3, and we will be talking about justifying grace. So let's dive into the word together. Will you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? Titus chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 7. says this, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Verse four, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. With the remaining time that I have with you, I want to bring this one big idea to life. Amazing grace transforms our eternity. Amazing grace transforms our eternity. Let's pray as we prepare our heart and mind to receive God's word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and remove all distractions or thoughts or worries that we might have brought into this sanctuary. And we ask that you would remove it and open up our eyes, ears, and heart to receive your word. Holy Spirit, I ask that that you would prepare our hearts to be good soil and that your word would take root in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So whether you realize it or not, the world we live in is is very transactional and conditional. Uh, Here's what I mean by this. We we hear and say things like, you scratch my back and, and I'll scratch yours. Or when someone requests our help or assistance, we, we may think things like, what's in it for me? And it seems like every relationship or friendship bears this mark. In serving others, we carefully calculate what we can ask in return or what will it cost me? We say things like, or think things like, you like my Instagram post, I'll like yours. And and this conditional world that we live in is is very formulaic. We know what we need to do to get exactly what we want. Do this, and this will happen. We love predictable formulas and conditions. We love knowing that if we do certain things, certain things will happen. Unconditionality, on the other hand, doesn't make sense. The very 
unconditional nature of grace doesn't make sense. Grace is counterintuitive and leaves us perplexed. I've heard one pastor say, grace is deeply offensive to our most natural sensibilities. Why? Because everything that makes sense in our conditional and transactional world is turned upside down. In our worldly system, we're used to people getting what they deserve. Oh, you wronged me? You did me dirty? And something happened to you? That's what you get. Yet grace says the exact opposite. Grace is not about getting what you deserve, but getting better than you deserve. In fact, here's a story about how, how grace is so counterintuitive to, to my natural sensibilities. Um, I met my wife at a ministry training in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, this setting was a very punctual learning environment. In other words, there was a policy in place that said you did not want to be late because if you arrive late, you will have to write a one-page exposition on, on how to honor God with other people's time. Or, uh, or, or what does the Bible say about being late? Uh, and so I made sure to always arrive on time uh, but one casual morning, my now wife, formerly known as Morgan Simpson, walks in late. Now, now, now let me explain to you how I felt inside. Uh, at, at this point in our, in our early friendship, Morgan was practicing an old art form called playing hard to get. Um, why? I don't know. Uh, apparently, she was there to, to learn about God and not fall in love. That's what she told me. Uh, but they both ended up happening, so winner right here. Uh, but let me tell you this. At this point, I was hopeless, okay? Uh, she had rejected my friendship, made it clear she didn't want to be my friend, was very standoffish. Uh, and so out of my frustration, I rejoiced internally and thought to myself, this is what you get, the Lord has favored me, has allowed Morgan to walk in late, and now I get to experience her receive punishment for being late. And somehow I connected that to uh, this is God giving me justice because she is so mean to me. I love you, babe. We're married now. It's okay. And, and, and what preceded next still perplexes me to this day and to my understanding virtually never happen. Paul Barker, the instructor, said, I give you grace. And that word grace shook me and perplexed me. I'm thinking to myself, no, she deserves to write the paper. She walked in late, and what does she get? Grace. She got something better than she deserved. We are conditioned to believe that People get what they deserve, but because of grace, we get to live better than we deserve. Author Philip Yancey, in his book uh, called What's So Amazing About Grace, coined the phrase scandalous grace. Scandalous because of how free, undeserved, and unconditional it is. So how is scandalous grace possible? And what do we truly deserve instead of that? that makes the grace God gives us scandalous. To help us understand this, let's take a look at verse three. It says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, 
slaves to various passions and pleasures, and passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. One of the reasons why I love the Bible so much, apart from being the word of God, is how brutally honest it is. This verse doesn't hold anything back. This verse gives us a very accurate diagnosis of the human condition. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, envious and hateful. These words right here put on full display a very accurate picture of our condition, of what we look like apart from Jesus in our lives. And this right here, this diagnosis, you're not going to find anywhere else. You're not going to walk into a doctor's office and and hear the doctor say, hey, here's what's actually wrong with you. You're foolish and disobedient. That's why you're always getting into trouble and not experience a high quality of life. You're led astray. You're in bondage to your passions and pleasures. And you think that they're bringing you life, but in reality, they're bringing you death. And you're gripped by envy and hate. So you're tormented by jealousy and anger, and it's destructive. You won't hear this anywhere else. Yet this is the problem. And to make it even more personal and more accurate, not only is this our condition, our problem, but you are the problem. I am the problem. Yet we live in such a way where we try to constantly excuse our behavior instead of taking ownership. We say things like, I'm young and dumb and I have the rest of my life to get right with God. These passions and pleasures I pursue, I, I'm not enslaved. I can, I can walk away whenever I want. But how's that working for you? We want to say things like, I, I've got a grip on my life. I know what I'm doing. Sin doesn't control me. I control sin. And this is the very idea of bondage. The enemy has you right where he wants you. The enemy wants you to think that you are in control of your life. Yet no matter how hard you try to walk away from your sinful passions and pleasures, you always end up back in the thing you told yourself you were going to walk away from. We excuse our behavior saying things like, I'm Mexican, so therefore I'm crazy and I'm loud and I'm proud and it's a cultural thing or... I'm an ENFPZ, Enneagram 7, and that's what I do what I do. That's why I act the way I act. It's the culture or the school that I go to or, or this happened in my life, and that's why I am the way that I am and, and do what I do. And I'm not trying to dismiss the trauma or pain you've experienced, but our ultimate predicament is sin. And our response to the wrongs and pains we've experienced is still on you, and it's still on me. And this problem finds its root in sin. And and this is the bad news. Genesis 3. Pastor Peter took us here last week and we see that something went wrong. Man's disobedience. Sin enters humanity. And now you and I are not what we are supposed to be. You and I are not the way we are supposed to be. And there's no denying this. You and I are not the way we are supposed to be, and we all feel this to the core. 
That's why we desire good self-help or pursue healing and wholeness or do whatever it takes to create a better version of ourselves. Because we know deep down that this version of ourselves isn't what it's supposed to be. And this is what the word of God reveals to us that no other book is going to tell you. Our relationship with ourselves has been fractured because our relationship with God has been fractured. In our sin, we've also rebelled against God. Instead of worshiping him and loving him, we worship and love other things. Instead of trusting God and living for him, we've turned our back on God and have trusted in lesser things. Money, status, possession, relationships, fill in the blank. And because of our rebellion, because of our wickedness, we don't deserve God. We are not entitled to God. He doesn't owe me and he doesn't owe you anything. The Bible says that God is holy and just and perfect. And I'm the complete opposite because of sin. And the Bible says that, that through my sinfulness, that though my sinfulness and rebellion breaks the heart of God, it has not gone unnoticed by God. In other words, God whose ways are perfect, in his system, sin is punishable by death. This is what I deserve. And it's only the Bible that will tell us, and it's the Holy Spirit who will convince us of this. I can't convince you of this. And I can't convince myself of this. Only the Holy Spirit can reveal to you who you really are in light of a holy God. Here's a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones that helps clarify this idea. He says, You will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism inside of you because of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. You will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner Because there is a mechanism, there's this internal thing going on inside of you because of sin that will always defend you against every accusation. Naturally, we always defend ourselves. Oh, oh, you're not as bad as you think you are. It's not your fault. Or, Or we blame others. Since the beginning, we've been defending ourselves. In the garden, what did Adam say? She gave me the fruit. She handed it to me. I just ate it. We naturally defend ourselves. And how is this overcome? How is this mechanism internally overcome? I want to suggest by God revealing himself to us and drawing us unto him. Being made aware of sin doesn't initially change you. But seeing Jesus for who he is as a substitute for my sin And falling in love with him and following him, that is what changes us. And this is the good news that brings us to verse 4. So so we just got done talking about a lot of bad news. but, But in reality, this bad news is good news because it gives way to great news. Let's take a look at verses 4 through 6. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's start with verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Against this dark and gloomy background, where we've just expounded upon the problem, the diagnosis that Paul gives us, the effect sin has on us, against this very dark background shines God's wonderful love in the gospel. I love the descriptive words here, goodness and loving kindness. The most familiar definition of grace is God's unmerited favor. Favor is God's approval and delight over you. God's approval and delight over you. Unmerited means not earned or deserved. In other words, unmerited favor is God's approval and delight over you that is not earned or deserved. And hopefully we made this clear. This is the result of God's goodness and loving kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. Verse 4 says that the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. Notice that word appeared. In Greek, it means to appear, to show, to become visible. Paul uses this same word in the previous chapter, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Notice, he doesn't say goodness and loving kindness like he does in the following chapter. He abbreviates it. He's writing in shorthand, and he sums it up in the word grace. Please see this. The grace of God has appeared. It became visible. It showed up. The goodness and loving kindness of God has appeared. In other words, Jesus is the personification of grace. Or as I've heard said many times, grace is a person and his name is Jesus. Jesus comes representing the grace of God. This means that Jesus comes and he lives for me and he dies for me, taking upon himself my wickedness and rebellion that separated me from God. He he takes my criminal record and gives me his perfect record. Where I rightfully deserve death, he gave me life. And now because of my faith and trust in Jesus, I get to experience unrestricted life with God. And I didn't do anything to deserve it. Jesus did this, and we see it in verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, washing me clean of sin, regenerating me, being born again, renewing me by the power of the Holy Spirit. He poured this out on me richly. He wasn't stingy about it. So that being justified, this word means to be declared righteous. 
that I could be declared righteous by his grace and become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And this word hope does not mean wishful thinking. Biblically, hope can mean assurance. By his grace, we might become heirs according to the assurance of eternal life. He saved us. He rescued us. Not by works done by us in righteousness. Let's briefly talk about this word righteousness for a moment, and then we'll look at the word justify. Now, this word righteousness doesn't connect very well in English, but in Hebrew, it's filled with meaning. I love this definition of righteousness by Tim Keller. He says this, righteousness is a validating performance record which opens doors. Righteousness is a validating performance record which opens doors. He uses this example. Say you want a job. So what do you do? You, you get out your resume. And your resume contains your vocational performance record. All of your accomplishments and experiences, it's all on this piece of paper. And what you do with that is you put it in an employer's hand and you essentially say, hey, employer, look at this performance record. Because of this record, because of my experiences and accomplishments, I am worthy of this job. So please accept me. Please hire me. And if it works out, a door is opened. Uh, Another example, say you want to pursue an advanced degree. What do you do? You bring out your academic record. uh, And these now function as a validating performance record. You say, look at this. Because of my grades and my experiences, please accept me. And hopefully it opens a door for you. In all of life, it's this way. Everyone, every single person in this room has a validating performance record. And every religion in every culture believes this about God. If we have a good performance record, God will consider you worthy and accepted, and it will open a door for you to be in relationship with God. And and in this setting, how was righteousness attained? Well, by keeping the Old Testament law. The Bible's standard of of human righteousness is God's own perfection in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, and every word. And so your validating performance record was how well you kept the law and were obedient to it. If it was good enough, then God would accept you and declare you righteous. But Paul comes along and he says that this perfect record, this perfect righteousness has come to you and it has come as a gift. And it is the end of your striving for acceptance, validation, and approval. And it has everything to do with grace and this word justification. To justify means to declare righteous. By his grace, we are justified. God declares us righteous. We get to experience approval and delight that is not earned or deserved. This justification is free, and this is amazing grace. When I deserved death and condemnation, 
I am given grace and a new life. He saved us and rescued us, and it has nothing to do with our efforts or performance. It is completely dependent upon his mercy and grace. This is incredible news because God does not wait for you to fully become right or get your life figured out before he says, yes, okay, now you're ready. Come on over, come follow me. He does not wait for you to justify yourself, to make yourself worthy and acceptable. He declares you righteous. This is really good news that God actually loves us unconditionally. Yet in some sense, we are conditioned against unconditionality, especially believing, can God actually love me unconditionally? If other people truly knew who I I was, they wouldn't love me. How much more God if he sees everything that I am? Can he love me despite what I've done? despite what I've been, to, been through, does God love unconditionally? And, and one of the reasons could be that it's difficult to believe that God loves us unconditionally is because we're told that accomplishment precedes acceptance. Accomplishment precedes acceptance. The idea behind this is simple and it manifests itself in very familiar ways. We buy into this idea that if I look a certain way or act a certain way, people will accept me and approve of me. Or, or let me work really hard to build wealth and be successful and then people will love me and accept me. So it's build, 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 hustle, hustle, hustle. Or, or we say things like, let me clean myself up before I jump into this faith thing. Let me do this, let me do that. Why? Because the world says that you have to look accomplished so you can be accepted. And here's what makes grace so amazing. It's not accomplishment, then acceptance. It's not conditional. It's pure, unconditional acceptance because of Jesus' accomplishment. Pure, unconditional acceptance because of Jesus' accomplishments. Not your accomplishments, not your pedigree, not your resume, your status, appearance, style, wealth, poverty, church attendance, righteousness, criminal record, none of that. Purely Jesus bringing you in. As we transition into communion, I want to close with this quote from Dr. Harold Sankbill, a professor at Concordia Theological Seminary. He says this, Our Heavenly Father attaches no strings to His love. His love for us doesn't depend on our love for others. Our relationship with the Father was established long ago in the body and blood of his Son. Jesus Christ erased all of our sins and shouldered all our sorrows. Already now we have a solid relationship with our Heavenly Father. There is no need to fret about it. That relationship doesn't depend on our love for him, but on his love for us. It hinges on the gospel of God, not the law of God. Again, the old Adam betrays us. 
our sinful nature would much rather hear law than gospel. The sinful nature is a seasoned do-it-yourselfer. We'd rather know what we should do, yet God insists on telling us who we are. The best way to tell you what to do as a Christian is to tell you who you are in Christ. The sinful nature likes to think it can earn and keep God's favor. Our old Adam prefers to base security with God the Father on his law rather than his gospel. He washed us, cleansed us from our mess and problem. We are born again and renewed. He declares who you are from the moment you commit your life to him. You are his son and daughter. And now your life becomes about growing as a son or daughter and not working to become a son or daughter. This is our hope. This is our reality. Eternal life. Life forever with God because of his amazing grace. I want to close with this question as we come to the table. Are you self-justifying? Do you depend on yourself, your efforts, your accomplishments to earn God's favor and make yourself right before God? Jesus gives you an invitation to experience life with him and it is accepted by placing your trust in him and fully relying on him. And it is the end, the absolute end of striving for approval and justifying your existence. You no longer need to justify your existence by your worth, your, your status, your, your beauty, or your accomplishments. Jesus approves of you and counts you worthy and delights in you because he unconditionally loves you. And we see that love on display at the cross. Second question, have you turned away from trying harder? And have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus to justify you? It is because of justification that the peace of God can rule in our, li- in our lives. It is because of justification that believers can have assurance of salvation. It is the fact that of justification that God in it that enables God to begin the process of sanctification, the process by which God makes us in reality what we already are positionally. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us come to the table and experience his peace. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and handed over to be crucified for our sins, he took the bread and the cup and said, this is my body given to you. And after that, they had eaten, he handed them the cup and, and he said, this cup is poured out for you. This is the new covenant of my blood. And we have uh, communion elements in the front and the back, and you can process through the center aisle uh, and make your way back to your seats. Pick up a piece of bread, dip it, um, or if you prefer, we have prepackaged elements. But of course, the most important instruction is that this sacrament 
is for Christians to be received by faith. If you are not prepared to receive communion, it's perfectly fine to sit it out. But if you do receive, receive it in faith and do this first as we go to our confession. Examine your heart. Empty yourself of anything you need to release to Jesus in order to be filled by him. Will you please stand and speak these words with your own convictions?